I need to check the calendar because if I didn't know any better, it's Techtober. But sure enough, here we are in the last week of March, and we've had a half dozen phones roll out this week, and we're going to take a gander. It's the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're taking a look at the, I wouldn't call it an avalanche, but it was certainly a strong rock slide of phones that got announced this week. Sure, the bell of the ball is probably the OnePlus 9 Pro, but we've got offerings from, well, pretty much everyone at the old BBK, but we've also got some Motos, some Zeiss, and some Hasselblad. There's a lot, let's just put it that way, which is why we're going to be talking about them. Plus, now that spring has sprung, we've got a fun little outdoor speaker to check out as part of our Tech Yeah Roundup. And we'll get to all of that, but first, we have to get to the news of the week. The floodgates of vaccinations have opened, and by the way, I'll be getting my first shot on Tuesday. Thank you very much. And folks across the country and around the world are proudly taking selfies of themselves and their vaccination cards. Except, is this really a good idea, asked CNN. Some argue that showing your vaccination card online is a terrible idea, and the accompanying social hacking video pretty much nails it down for me. Basically, the gist of this is, most vaccination cards include your full name and often your birthday. It's not a ton of extra information on you, but if the photo is geotagged, then suddenly people know where you got your shot. Maybe they can call in and cancel your second dose appointment for you. Wouldn't that be fun? In the video on CNN, White Hat social hacker Rachel Toback shows everyone how easy it is to gain access to people's accounts over the phone through social engineering. In one instance, she was able to obtain a reporter's home address from a furniture company. But it doesn't stop there. There are a ton of things that you can tweet about that companies actually use as a legitimate means of identifying you over the phone. For example, say you're having Christmas at your mom's house and you post a pic on the gram. Well, if it's geotagged, suddenly people know that you grew up on Maple Street just a few doors down from the corner of Maple and Maple. Maybe you use the name of your street you grew up on as a security password, and it snowballs from there. Bottom line, the less information you have out there about you, the better, which means I'm completely screwed, but maybe you still have a chance. And speaking of being screwed, but maybe possibly having a chance, Microsoft is in exclusive talks to acquire Discord for around $10 billion with a B dollars. Keeping in mind that Discord only made around $130 million in revenue last year, it wasn't even profitable. But they've been valued at $7 billion with a B dollars, and guys... I don't get this. You have a company that gives away 99% of its products for free, but oh gee whiz, you can buy stickers for $9.99, and it made $130 million in revenue last year, and yet it's somehow valued at $7 billion. I mean, that's like saying my wallet has a $20 bill in it, and I bought the wallet itself for $50, so I'm just going to ask you for like $750,000 for my wallet, because honestly... It just hasn't lived up to its potential yet. Oh, sure, there's only $20 in it, but it's capable of holding several thousand dollars, and it has my Cinnabon gift card in it, too. That's why I don't understand business. Or, I do understand business, and business is complete BS. Could go either way. 
A new bill proposed in the U.S. House of Representatives would bring a 30% tax rebate to people who purchase an e-bike for commuting up to a maximum of $1,500. And it's not a bad deal, and honestly, it might help me sell the idea of an e-bike to my wife. The idea here is to get more cars off the road, even for just eight months of the year in places like Chicago. Honestly, on an e-bike, I could probably go from my house to downtown in like two hours, which is a long commute for sure, but it's definitely doable. For people who live closer to the city, it becomes even more economical. But Jalopnik points out that a 30% incentive is nice, but for the vast majority of people who rely on a car, like the working poor, which is like anybody who doesn't work on Wall Street, that would still put a $1,000 e-bike in the $700 range, which doesn't really make it any more accessible. And speaking as a working poor, I can confirm. What's more, capping the incentive at $1,500 means that you can buy at most an $8,000 e-bike to take full advantage of the tax rebate. And it occurs to me that someone who is buying an $8,000 e-bike can probably afford to not get $1,500 back. That being said, I'm happy to see alternative forms of transportation being promoted with incentives, so we're going to call this one a good effort, but maybe slightly misguided. This week, Slack rolled out its long-promised intercompany chat feature, which lets you DM anyone in other companies other than your home Slack interface. The feature starts with paid Slack users, but will roll out to free users later in the year. Slack sees this as a way to replace email, and I could see a strong argument for it, but I also wonder what will happen to freelancers like me, who's a member of like five different Slack rooms. Will I be able to consolidate? Can I just set up my own Slack channel and just have everyone Slack me? I'm really not sure how to work that out just yet, but it seems like there are security issues with this as well. One user on Twitter, and unfortunately their name escapes me, discovered that if you send an invitation to another person, it sends the complete text of the invitation to the recipient's email address, even if the first invitation was declined. The result is I can send repeated invitations to Jack at Twitter saying, put in an edit button, you jerk, and Jack can't block those emails because they're not coming from me, they're coming from a generic Slack email address. And this is just one loophole that people have found. Who knows what else may be lurking out there? Personally, this is a feature that I'm not particularly excited about, but I'm also a freelancer. For larger companies that regularly work with other large companies, I can see how this would be handy. I just hope Slack is hard at work fixing these loopholes so it's a feature that doesn't become abused. Qualcomm, a.k.a. La Silicon Nostra, is looking to get back into the consumer hardware space with what amounts to an Android-powered Nintendo Switch knockoff. This is a rumor, of course, since the gaming system isn't projected to be out for another year. And you're right, we typically don't talk about rumors here, but this is an interesting one for sure. The portable console would be sold directly from Qualcomm, and it would have a main screen with two attachable controllers, just like the Nintendo Switch. It would also like likely feature the ability to connect to a larger screen like its Nintendo counterpart. It would also likely be able to feature some kind of 5G connectivity because it is Qualcomm after all. 
The portable gaming platform would run Android 12 with a highly customized skin slash launcher and be optimized for Android games. Some rumors suggest that the Epic Game Store would also ship on the tablet, meaning that's good news for Fortnite gamers. What interests me is the idea of having hardware built into the gaming console, and I wonder how games would work with that. For example, the Kishi controller basically turns your phone into a Nintendo Switch, but games like Call of Duty Mobile don't support that, or at least it didn't the last time I checked, which is, by the way, why I don't own a Kishi controller. It'll be interesting to see how the physical controller interacts with Android games that don't necessarily support external controllers. It'll also be interesting to see the price point. Rumors suggest a price right around $300, but who knows if that includes the controllers, 5G connectivity, or whatever else. It'll only take us a year to find out, which, by the way, is also why we don't generally talk about rumors. Black Widow, the final chapter in the Infinity War saga, which is also a prequel to that same movie, has been pushed back several times since the initial release date of May 2020. Well, it seems Black Widow finally has a release date, and it is July 9th, 2021. It will be a simultaneous release in theaters and on Disney Plus as a premium access feature, presumably with the extra $30 price tag that Mulan got. Fans of Marvel were a little split in terms of excitement and enthusiasm. On the one hand, they finally get to see another woman-led Marvel movie, and it's a crime that Black Widow getting her own movie took this long. But on the other hand, some fans are less enthusiastic about the release plan, thinking that Disney is sabotaging Black Widow with the simultaneous release. Well, I get it, but what's a movie company that doesn't have movie theaters going to do? Personally, I might pay to see it on Disney Plus when it comes out, but I also might just wait until it comes to Disney Plus for free. Other Marvel feature films aren't coming for quite some time, so there's not a whole lot of incentive to see this movie on the day of release, you know, to keep up with the franchise. Hell, I still haven't watched Mulan, so I might have to wait a couple of extra months for Black Widow, and I'm okay with that. But that's because I'm cheap. Paying an extra $30 on top of a subscription to see it on the day of release is probably still cheaper and certainly certainly more convenient than going to an actual movie theater. Here in Chicago, you can expect to pay at least $10 per person at a theater to say nothing of the $5 Milk Duds and $6 Sour Patch Kids. Suddenly, $30 doesn't seem like such a bad idea, and all you have to give up are two loud loudspeakers and teenagers texting their friends in front of you while you're trying to watch a damn movie, for crap's sakes, and yeah, get off my lawn. Speaking of Disney+, Plus, it premiered, what, 18 months ago? Has it been that long? Good lord. Well, anyway, when it came out, people wondered how long Disney would stick to the $6.99 pricing per month, and it turns out the answer is, well, about 18 months. Disney announced this week that its monthly subscription plan would raise by $1 per month to $7.99, and its bundle with Hulu and ESPN will similarly go up by $1 per month each. If you have a yearly plan, or in my case, a three-year plan, your price stays the same. Of course, this begs the question, when I need to renew my prescription in 18 months from now, will I be able to afford it? But that's a concern for a different time. Honestly, a dollar isn't a big deal, but over time, it will accumulate. Hell, I remember when Netflix was six. $6.99 per month, and it seems like an extremely long time ago at this point. I'm sure Disney will get up to Netflix and HBO Max levels eventually. It's frankly a miracle that the price started so low to begin with and stayed that low for this long. 
Percy, the Mars rover, carried a drone called Ingenuity with it on its trip to Mars. But what we didn't know until this week is that the drone itself carries a piece of the Wright brothers' first airplane along with it. A piece of muslin about the size of a postage stamp is attached to a cable just below the solar panels. Ingenuity will attempt its first powered controlled flight on another planet in just a couple of weeks, so it's appropriate that a piece of the Wright brothers is along for the ride. Similarly, another piece of the plane and a splinter from the aircraft went along with Apollo 11 on its trip to and from the moon. It seems when the Wright brothers first left Earth, they were destined to go farther and farther along for the ride. And that is just a beautiful thing. We've been talking for weeks about the asteroid Apophis and its journey around our solar system and the possibility that the god of chaos might end life on Earth in 2068. Well, you can put those fears to rest because astronomers took advantage of Apophis's latest flyby to take even more accurate measurements of its flight path and have calculated that there is zero possibility of an impact in 2068. In fact, they've rolled out any impact for the next 100 years, which is both reassuring... And still kind of nerve-wracking, because there's a good chance my grandkids will still be alive in a hundred years, so maybe can we rule it out further than that, scientists? I mean, either way, I'll be worm food by then, but I guess it's nice to know that humans have another hundred years of worry-free existence so that we can all grow towards that enlightenment that we've seen so often on Star Trek. In fact, maybe by the time a hundred years is up, we'll have figured out how to stop it altogether, and it looks like we have that hundred years to figure out how to stop our own demise. At least from Apophis, another big rock could come around with no notice, and yep, I'm back to being paranoid. It was fun while it lasted. And finally, this week saw the release of the official trailer of Suicide Squad, which looks just amazing, and I can't wait until it comes out for reals. By the way, this is a Warner Brothers movie, and as such, it will debut in theaters and HBO Max at the same time, and just like that... I'm keeping HBO Max, and I guess that was kind of the point. Anyway, the film looks pretty awesome, coming from the mind of James Gunn, who wrote and directed the first two Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Gunn has just the kind of humor and flavor that's needed to bring a movie like Suicide Squad together and have it not be, you know, crappy. And yes, I'm referring to not only the first Suicide Squad movie, which was... Honestly, just okay, but pretty much every other DC movie ever made. Why is it that DC movies made about villains are so much better than the ones made about the heroes? Maybe it's because they cast a villain and stick with them? No, wait, no. Jared Leto and Joaquin Phoenix. Well, never mind, I guess. Anyway, the movie comes out on August 6th, so you can expect me to have a lot to say about it on August 7th. Backend, application, API, bugs, attachment, DevOps, backend, frameworks, backward, compiled, oriented, natural language, software, blue text editor, book version, Boolean web server. Welcome to Tech Yeah! This 
week for Tech Yeah, we have an interesting item from a company called iLive. Now that the calendar is turned and we're starting to spend a little bit more time outside, something like this makes a lot of sense. This is the iLive Bluetooth tailgate speaker, and it comes with basically everything you need to be a knockabout speaker for the great outdoors. And let's get this out of the way right now. In terms of sound quality, it's not the best, but it is loud enough to be heard just about anywhere in your yard or your neighbor's yard or a few houses down the street. And with that, let's get into the hardware. This is a little smaller than I expected it to be. It has an 8-inch subwoofer, which doesn't produce super heavy bass. It's largely a plastic build overall, which makes it super lightweight at just 6 pounds, which is a little funny because one of the selling points is an extendable handle and roller that makes it, air quotes, portable. But in most instances, I just grab the whole thing and carry it wherever it needs to go. I'd almost rather have them get rid of the extending handle and wheels and make it 5.5 pounds instead of 6. You can connect your phone to the speaker via Bluetooth, and the latency is actually fairly low, which is a nice bonus. There's an FM radio, microphone input, and separate music and mic levels, along with an adjustable echo effect on the mic, making it fun for karaoke or just generally making announcements. It also has a micro SD card reader and a line-in jack if you want to connect another device. The speaker itself also has LED lights built into it, which can flash and give a funky lighting effect on the speaker for nighttime celebrations. The speaker also has a mount on the bottom for setting it up on a stand to elevate it, which is a nice and often overlooked touch iLive calls this a tailgate speaker, and honestly, I couldn't agree more. Whether you're playing some music while at a barbecue or playing TV audio through it while watching the game, sound quality becomes less important as the other effects, the lighting and even the microphone. You won't miss booming bass when you're outside hanging out before a game. This is not a speaker that you're going to put in your living room. This is a speaker that you toss into the back of your pickup on your way to the beach, and I can get behind that. And overall, it's a decent speaker for around $50, so it's kind of hard to go wrong. I've put a link in the show notes and on benefitofadow.com, and if you pick one up, I'll get a little piece of that at no additional cost to you, and you'll have my thanks. But for now, let's get back to the show. Our top story in this podcast this week is the onslaught of phones released by manufacturers from around the world. There was a lot of action similar to what we usually see in the fall, so I wanted to take a moment to talk about them and everything that comes along with them. I think we all know who the star of this show is, so we're going to save that for last. And we're going to start with Xiaomi, who, spoiler alert, will probably have another device to talk about next week. But as for this week, let's get into it. This week, Xiaomi launched the Black Shark 4 and the Black Shark 4 Pro. This is Xiaomi's line of gaming phones, and they're pretty beefy. Not ROG Phone 5 beefy, but still, there's a good bit of beef here. You get the specs you expect with a gaming phone. Starting with the Black Shark 4, you get with the Snapdragon 870, which, as we've discussed before, is basically just a rebranded and slightly overclocked Snapdragon 865. It's a pretty powerful processor, and it belongs on a gaming phone. You also get 6 gigabytes of RAM, which is not awesome, and 128 gigabytes of storage, which is also not awesome, but it also clocks in at $383, which is pretty awesome. The Black Shark 4 Pro has a Snapdragon 888 
8 gigabytes of RAM and 256 gigabytes of storage. So now we're talking. Both phones have a 720 hertz touch sampling rate, which is bonkers, resulting in 8.3 millisecond touch delay. Xiaomi claims that this is the fastest in the industry, and thank God, because I just can't stand anything above a 15 millisecond touch delay, because Jesus, Buffy, I'm not getting any younger here. Both phones have the same mechanical shoulder buttons previous Black Shark models have had, which is awesome. Both phones have a 6.67-inch pressure-sensitive screen with what Black Shark calls the magic touch. Basically, it means you can assign multiple buttons to the same area based on how hard you press the screen. This is not unlike iPhone's 3D touch feature, but this is exclusively for gaming. It's potentially cool, but I've never used it myself. The phones launched this past Friday in China, and there will be an overseas launch, quote, in the near future, which is interesting, but still probably not America, so, you know, less interesting. By the way, Xiaomi wasn't done this week because Poco introduced the Poco X3 Pro and the Poco F3, and this time we'll start with the Pro, which is also the lower-spec phone, and just what?! Anyway, the Poco X3 Pro is basically a reboot of last year's Poco X3 NFC, which had a 6.67-inch 120Hz LCD panel, 5,160 mAh battery, and quad-camera setup, headlined by a 48-megapixel primary sensor. The only thing different in this phone is the Qualcomm Snapdragon 860 processor. This is a processor that had previously been unannounced, but like the Snapdragon 870 we talked about in the last story, the Snapdragon 860 is a rebranded and slightly overclocked Snapdragon 855 from two years ago. Yes, it's true. Qualcomm gets a lot of mileage out of its processors. That is faux show. Meanwhile, over on the Poco F3, not to be confused with the X3 Pro, of course, the F3 has a Snapdragon 870, which is fun. The rest of the phone is a rebranded Xiaomi Redmi K40, including the 6.67-inch screen... Man, they must have gotten a good rate on 6.67-inch screens, I guess. The F3 also has a 4,520 milliamp hour battery, 6 or 8 gigabytes of RAM, and 128 or 256 gigabytes of storage. Where these phones really make headlines, as did the Poco phones before them, is in the price. The X3 Pro goes for 199 euro, while the F3 goes for 299 euro. That's pretty impressive, no matter how you shake it. Now, if only Xiaomi would sell phones here in the U.S., but then again, I guess Huawei tried to do that, and look where it got them. Next up, we have the Realme 8 Pro, and Tech Radar has lots of good things to say about this phone. Realme has been a presence in the premium budget space for some time now. In fact, I've had the opportunity to review a phone or two of theirs before, and I can attest, they're right up there. The phone has a Snapdragon 720G processor and 8GB of RAM, so it's not exactly a powerhouse, but TechRadar reported a Geekbench score of 1679, which is above the Pixel 5's 1600 score. So there's that. What impresses with this phone is the look and feel of the phone, along with the camera setup. The body is a typical polycarbonate with a textured back that looks and feels really nice. Somewhat garishly is the company's motto, quote, Dare to Leap, written in big, bold capital letters on the back of the phone. Depending on your taste, you'll like that or you'll hate it. The display is a 6.4-inch FHD Plus AMOLED display with bright, vibrant colors, though it's stuck at a mere 60 hertz. 
don't even get me started on that. The cameras on this phone include a 108-megapixel main sensor, 8-megapixel ultra-wide, and a pair of 2-megapixel sensors for depth sensing and macro shots. The macro camera is garbage, so don't even bother, but the 108-megapixel main sensor impresses with vibrant colors and a crop that allows you to zoom in without being a garbled mess. TechRadar says you can zoom to about 20x and remain usable, but anything above 5x starts to get a little choppy. All the same, that's not that bad. Battery life on the phone is good, and it's capable of a 50-watt charging, which gets the phone back to up to full in under an hour. There's no wireless charging, nor is there 5G, which is a lot and a little disappointing, respectively. Pricing is not bad at £279 or $390 American. This phone won't be available in the States, of course, but it's not badly priced, considering everything it offers. Vivo also busted out a new phone this week. Getting dizzy yet? This week, we got the Vivo X60, the X60 Pro, and the X60 Pro Plus. Vivo teamed up with Carl Zeiss for its camera system, which means that Vivo gets to brag, just like OnePlus, about the super-famous camera company it partnered with, while at the same time accomplishing basically nothing. The X60 Pro Plus will launch in India exclusively, and it sports a quad camera setup with a 50-megapixel Samsung primary sensor, a 48-megapixel ultra-wide sensor with gimbal stabilization, a 32-megapixel 2x telephoto sensor, and an 8-megapixel 5x periscope zoom lens. It also runs a Snapdragon 888 processor with 12 gigabytes of RAM and 256 gigabytes of storage. The battery is a 4200 milliamp hour battery pack with no wireless charging. Overall, it seems like a potentially decent phone and camera system, so good for you, India, but it's also fairly pricey at 69,990 rupees or $960, so there's also that. The X60 Pro and the X60 both use a Snapdragon 870 processor, and we have 12 gigabytes and 8 gigabytes of RAM, and 256 gigabytes and 128 gigabytes of storage, respectively. It's really all there is to say about those phones, so we're going to move on. Motorola also released a quartet of phones this week, the most notable being the Moto G100. TechRadar has initial impressions of that phone in that it's huge and powerful and has a bunch of cameras to play with, though of the four on the back, two of them are a time-of-flight sensor and a 2-megapixel depth sensor, and seriously, can we just stop calling these things cameras? I mean, I know technically they're cameras, but still. The sensors that count are a 64-megapixel main sensor and a 16-megapixel ultra-wide sensor. The deal with the Moto G100 is that you can't buy the phone alone. You also need to buy a Ready4 dock and cable, which is basically Moto's answer to DeX. You can put your phone in the dock and connect to a monitor and get a bigger experience for gaming or for work. The stand is bundled into the price, which, honestly, if you ask me, that's fine. Tech Radar has issues with it, but some people may not want the extra hardware, and at least Moto knows that not bundling it means that it'll never get used. Yes, it does drive up the price to $620, but that's still a decent price for the phone itself. It doesn't matter for me anyway, since this phone is also not coming to the U.S. This week was just a laundry list of brand new phones, none of which are coming to the U.S., and just what's up with that? But there is one company releasing a phone to the U.S., and that is our friends at OnePlus.
That's right. OnePlus launched its nine series of phones, including the OnePlus 9, the OnePlus 9 Pro, and the OnePlus 9R. We're not going to talk much about the 9R because, again, it's an India-only release. Suffice it to say, on paper, it looks like a really nice value. And if you live in India, you should probably consider it. But for now, we're going to turn our sights onto the OnePlus 9 Pro and the OnePlus 9. So first of all, it's worth mentioning that I will be getting a OnePlus 9 Pro for review courtesy of my friends over at Android Central. Daniel Bader, friend of the show, is the man full stop. So now you can expect my full review coming in a few weeks. For right now, though, we're going to cover the highlights. The OnePlus 9 Pro and non-Pro are very similar in many ways. Both have a Snapdragon 888, both have 8 and 12 gigabyte memory variants and 128 and 256 gigabyte storage variants. Both have the same main sensor and ultra-wide sensors. The 9 Pro adds a 3x optical telephoto lens. The ways they differ are a flat Full HD Plus screen on the 9 and a curved QHD Plus screen on the 9 Pro. The 9 Pro screen is also 0.2 inches bigger than the non-9. And that's about it. 9to5 Google argues that this year the OnePlus 9 Not Pro is arguably the better buy, and I really can't fault their logic. The 9 starts at around $200 less than the 9 Pro, and the only real difference is an 8-megapixel 3x optical zoom lens, which honestly you can probably do without. Yes, this is the guy who continually trumpets that telephoto lenses are better than ultrawide, and I'm saying this, so you should probably listen. So that about covers it. I mean, this is a crazy week in phone releases, and I'm excited by all of them. We're starting to get into a new season of phones, and that's always fun. It makes the absence of an MWC a little bit more palatable, and it gives you a ton of options if you happen to be in the market for a new phone. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. It's been a nice, fun week off from freelance work, and I still have one more week off ahead of me, except I'm still going to be doing freelance work because I'm a workaholic, and there you go. Anyway, I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.